I do believe people can change. And I do believe that when a manager has been allowed to behave that way, that there's some responsibility on the organization's part because they didn't do values-driven interviewing or have those conversations. And I do believe in trying. Like I think that if it's your first complaint and you're a new manager, I think that the organization does, should intervene and try and get you some, you know, get you some training. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook or at goodmorninghr.com. As the pandemic wanes and employees across the U.S. began to return to the office, there's a lot of talk about the business lessons learned from the pandemic. We'll explore many of those lessons in the coming weeks, but today we'll explore an issue that existed well before the first COVID-19 case was diagnosed in North America. This issue is the topic of countless business books, scholarly articles, and conference presentations. It is the source of millions of internet posts and is so universal that it made Scott Adams' Dilbert comic strips ubiquitous cubicle decorations. To put it succinctly, most managers suck. That's not exactly a newsflash, but my guest today says that something began to change early in the pandemic. Employees were increasingly less willing to tolerate crappy managers. My guest is Terry Swain. Terry started her career as an EEOC investigator and later ran HR functions for major corporations before entering the consulting world over two decades ago. Her firm, the HR Consultant, focuses on EEO compliance, affirmative action planning, and employee relations issues for companies of all sizes across the U.S. Good morning, Terry, and thanks for visiting with me. Good morning, Mike. Happy to be here. So we were talking and you mentioned that you noticed an uptick in employee relations issues uh, early in the pandemic. Tell me about that. Yeah, so super interesting. You know, in my business, I do third party kind of investigations. So companies call me in when they've got the CEOs in trouble or somebody in HR or they feel they can't be objective Um, or they know it's going to litigation and they want a third set of eyes to look at something. So I probably do about one of those a year, one of those a month, sorry, not a year, one, one a month. And when the pandemic, you know, about May, so we're two months into pandemic, I started getting a deluge of calls and I was doing an investigation every week from May to December, every single week. I'd, I'd finish one up and a phone call would come. And um, so it was very interesting. It was kind of interesting to see what those issues were and what they ended up being. Were these like Title VII type protected class complaints or what what kind of issues were they? Yeah. So they were kind of, I want to say, cloaked or disguised as HR, as uh, compliance issues. Like, you know, I think this is happening to me because I'm over the age of 40. I think this has happened to happening to me because I'm female. I think this is happening to me because I'm African-American. Um, a lot of race, gender kind of, kind of, that's how the complaint came to the organization. And that's why I got called, right? We think this is, 
you know, pattern and practice race case, or this is, you know, failure to promote a female or whatever the case may be. So that's what kind of it looked like on the surface. But then, but then, <laughs> but then, yeah. dun, 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 you know, as I started investigating, so there's a very clear way that you investigate when you're looking at, is this based on my race or gender? And that's comparative analysis. So you're really saying like who was treated the same way or the different way and what's the pattern? Who did this person terminate? Who did they promote? And I started to understand that the majority of these cases were not race discrimination. They weren't gender discrimination. They were really poor leadership and management that I think the pandemic um, amplified, right? Because I think that if you're in a good economy, like we were before March, if somebody didn't like their manager or company, what'd they do? They left and found another job. Well, when we shut change down jobs. for yeah. right, change jobs and change managers. That's what we say in HR, right? In this economy where you didn't know, we did not know what was going to happen. We didn't know there were going to be PPP loans. We didn't know you're going to get an extra 600 bucks on unemployment. We didn't know if businesses were going to go under. I mean, there was a lot of uncertainty. So people had to stay where they were. And they stayed kind of in that agitated state. And it amplified. I mean, it really amplified poor leadership, I believe, because it was like case after case after case started sounding the same. I mean, it presented itself as race discrimination, gender discrimination. But when you started digging, you'd find, oh, that manager treats everybody that way. And it's not discrimination. It's bad leadership. And in many cases existed for a long time, but people had had enough. And and they were scared that they were going to lose their job. They couldn't leave and find another job. So it's like, Okay, if it's going to be me or you, yeah, I think it's going to be you now, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, and that's interesting, right? We, and I think most HR uh, folks who, who do much investigative work have seen that over the years, too. A lot of your cases that present as a Title VII type claim or something really boil down to, uh, you know, the manager's an a-hole. And, and it just, you know, it's, it's just the, the general environment and yeah, it's, uh, you know, you may be in a protected class and, and it's, you know, probably reasonable given, you know, some lived experiences to assume that bad treatment is, is, you know, caused by, uh, someone else's biases, but sometimes it's just the manager is a, has a bias against all of humanity or against uh, good business practices. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's not to say that there isn't race discrimination, there isn't gender discrimination, but it was very interesting to me during the pandemic that it just was one after another. And like they were different organizations, they were different people, and they all sounded alike. And what was really interesting to me is I started seeing a pattern where, you know, you talk to all the employees of this manager and 11 out of 12 of them would say the same thing. There might be one outlier that really loved that person. And their peers would be like, yeah, we know that guy's a problem. But above <laughs> them, you'd talk to their managers and they would act like this person walked on water and they were shocked. Like they were hearing it at the same time. At, at They were hearing it for the first time. And oftentimes even the person, like, because I always get gather the information and then I confront the person and say, okay, this is what I heard. I want you to respond to it. Tell me. 
And in some cases, they were shocked. Like, I am shocked to hear this about my employees. Like, there was such a disconnect somewhere that was, it was very odd to me. And then it just became more apparent and more apparent and more apparent. You know, this is a leadership issue. It, it's a failure of leadership. It's, it's, it's a leadership issue. What were the behaviors you were seeing most often that were problematic? Okay, well, hate to go back to the word, but kind of that asshole factor, you know, like um, making you do, making you be there when you really didn't need to be there, um, not helping you with staffing, not helping you succeed, uh, making you travel, not communicating. I mean, not communicating is a big one. Um, and you know, unrealistic expectations or meeting expectations. And then you, you, you change them on me. Um, not providing development when you said you're going to provide development, kind of all those things that the opposite of a good leader is. And if a, if a leader wasn't good at doing that outside of a crisis, it was probably really magnified their deficiencies in how they communicate, uh, and how they respond to their own stress, how they project that onto their employees, those kinds of things probably is. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Exponential. Yeah. Cause yeah. then you had that, you had that whole thing about now we have protocols, you know, are we going to work from home, not work from home, who gets paid, who doesn't get paid. So there was a whole level of complexity added to leaders. So if they weren't kind of in that good leadership space and now you threw all this other stuff on top of them, it was a little mu too much for them. It was too much for the the people, and you know, it was it was a good year to pay off your vehicle if you had a a loan on your vehicle and you're a consultant. Yeah, that's that's you know, or buy a fish. What's what I think is interesting is, and and I've seen it plenty of times is, is that disconnect you mentioned between senior management and middle management. And you can have a middle manager who looks like an all-star according to the metrics uh, and senior management, you know, thinks, Hey, this guy's, you know, or, you know, this is doing great. And then you, you, you look at the situation on the ground where, you know, in the, you know, that person's relationship with rank and file and you just see it's a hot mess. Um, and I think that boils down a lot of times to measuring the wrong things. If you, you know, you, you get, you get what you measure and you incentivize certain kinds of behavior. And sometimes if you're, you know, if your short-term focus is hitting these numbers this quarter, then maybe you're not going to get that, you know, hit those more important long-term metrics like employee retention and engagement and, 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 you know, having employees give you that discretionary effort that goes above and beyond just the, the basics of, of showing up to work every day. Right. Because then you're running roughshod over your people to get your numbers. That's why right. you can look so good because down here, you're creating all this havoc to make them panic to get what they need. And yeah, long-term viability. Uh, so yeah, so people should be measuring different things. I mean, retention. Um, exit interviews, you know, interestingly, before the pandemic, we had a couple companies that were hiring a third party us to do exit interviews because they were losing a lot of their tech help. And so they felt like a, an outsider could give them that constructive feedback. People usually on their way out the door will say, oh, this was a great place to work because 
they moved on, right? They don't want to burn a bridge. Uh, but right. interestingly, right. on some of those tech firms, people were leaving because they wanted to work from home, which probably all worked itself out in the pandemic. But yeah. Yeah. Last, last summer, in the middle of all of this, I did a big project for uh, a large nonprofit uh, that had some pretty significant leadership issues and ultimately ended up firing their CEO. But we did exit interviews from employees who had left in, in the months preceding uh, our intervention. But then I went back and did stay interviews too, and just sat down with you know every employee in the organization and and asked you know basically why are you still here, and uh, you know and that was enlightening because you know I could identify people who really cared about the mission of the organization and really believed in it, and were just carrying a tremendous burden um, because of of the lack of recognition and support that they were getting from leadership. And uh, I think that that's what ultimately drew, drew that, that organization's board to take action was the fact that, you know, you've already got 60% annual turnover this year. You're going to have a hundred percent. If you're going to lose these, you know, these last few remaining really dedicated people, if you don't, if you don't take, you know, take some action. Yeah. I did one investigation where I asked every single person that I interviewed you know, if they were, if they were the people that were still employed there, if they were looking for another job and every single person said yes, but it was an industry where in the pandemic, you know, retail and a lot of people were closed, maybe closed forever. Didn't know when they were going to open. There weren't a lot of opportunities out there either, but yeah, I mean, there's just so many things. Um, I just think that came to light in cri- I mean, in a time of crisis. And then it's really interesting. So I'd say May to December, one a week. And then December, it kind of like, it lulled. I think everybody got in a place. Um, companies understood they had to work, had work from home people. Everybody kind of cu- hunkered down into the pandemic, right? And then when people needed to be returning to work, like I'm going to say about April, May of this year, bam, uptick again. Because now we're like, okay, yeah, come back to work. And now we've got ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act issues and people with gender related issues with moms that have stayed home with kids and daycares that maybe opened or not opened or they didn't feel safe with opening. And now we've got those same leadership issues happening again because we asked you all to be home and do this for us. But now we're like, oh, no, just kidding. Come on back. And um and we're seeing an uptick again. And it, and again, it's those same things. And I love to hear people say, we can't have all these people working from home. It's so unproductive. But you ask, well, how do you measure productivity? And how do you know that? And they don't. They really just want people at work so that they can keep an eye, right? So um, it's just interesting. So it's, it's happening again. Yeah, uh, in March of last year, spring break, and I was uh, with my family in Bentonville, Arkansas, uh, visiting Crystal Bridges, and just that week watching the, the shutdown kind of roll across the country, and uh, you know, called my IT guy and said, "Hey, you know all that money we spent on that disaster recovery plan where we'd all go remote? Will that work?" <laughs> <laughs> and, he said, <laughs> you know, and he said, "Yeah, it should," and it did for us. 
But then, uh, and, you know, I think for a lot of, you know, we communicated to our clients what we were doing. And I think for a lot of them, we, we you know, became, you know, kind of the uh, how-to guide. And they were calling and asking a lot of questions. And, and But one of the questions I kept hearing from certain clients was, well, how will we know our people are productive or how will we measure our people or, um, you know, what's, you know, they're not going to get any work done. And my answer was always, well, that's a bigger problem. If, if, if you if your management has to manage people by looking over their shoulder all day, you you've already got an issue. Uh, and, uh, you're probably not going to be any less productive with them at home. Uh, they may, you know, but if you don't have measurements of how you measure productivity, uh, if employees don't have clear goals about what they have to get done and they don't, Feel like they've got the resources to, to do those things in the office then how do you expect them you know why do you think it's going to be any different in negative or positively uh when they go remote and um and i think that's the the managers who i've seen succeed in our client base over the last year and a half have been the ones who were great managers before because they had high accountability and their employees trusted them and the ones who've struggled in the organizations that have struggled uh have have large, largely been the kinds of organizations where it's very top down management and uh, uh, you know it's the, it's it's very it's not it's not about helping that employee be the best employee that they can be it's about just hitting these black and white numbers or or just that kind of rote behavior that uh, that doesn't really you know that just looks at people as cogs in the machine right absolutely so what have, what have you seen um, as far as interventions that might have been successful other than just, you know, firing the, the manager who, uh, who's not, uh, who's turning out not to, you know, who's turning out to be a problem? Well, you know, some of the things that I think and, and some of these companies I've worked with this is, you know, like I'm thinking about my one client that had a lot of these issues. They were keeping metrics on... Um, complaints. But the metric was, you know, did we, this person complained of sexual harassment? Did this, no, this wasn't sexual harassment, you know, so that case closed. Like they were, they internally were measuring how many complaints did we have and how many wins and losses, right? Right, right. Instead of saying, why does Houston district manager have 50 complaints And Arkansas district manager has zero. Like what, the fact that there's a lot of complaints or maybe the fact that there's no complaints, you know, are people afraid to come forward? They started, we started looking at those metrics a little bit differently. So I think that's one thing is like, what are, what are even you measuring? Um, And doing some of the exit interviews, you know, not just talking, you know, in this one case, I talked to people who were fired which usually when you're doing exits, oh, oh, no, no, no. Let's not talk about, talk to people who are fired. Yeah, let's talk to people who were terminated by some of these individuals so that we can get some honest feedback, you know? Um, And I think then, you know, focus groups, I mean, there's a lot of, you have to kind of know your organization and what, what it's capable of doing. Is it survey work? Is it focus group work? Um, I think those kinds of things. And then just thinking about, I mean, we all know this in HR. Typically, the person who gets promoted into management, you know, especially supervisory management, and that kind of gets bumped up, 
is the person that is so good at widget making, accounting, whatever the case may be, right. you know, and not. Right. When I was in healthcare, we would always use the example of a great nurse who we made a nurse manager. And, uh, and that's, you know, there's no correlation between those two sets of skills. They're, they're not, but we rarely do that. So really thinking about what are the competencies that you need, you know, use these bad examples to say, hey, yeah, this person can hit all their numbers, but their turnover rate is X, you know, so looking at turnover, looking at employee, you know, um, employee surveys, looking at all those things so that we can, we can um, evaluate this person on things that really uh, match our values. Because in a lot of those organizations, it's interesting because the value statement's right on the wall, you know, interviewing somebody right underneath the value statement. And you're like, yeah, this doesn't sound like those value statements, right? Right. So, because... Yeah, that's... In in our job descriptions at Imperative, the first, uh, the first, or I guess it's the second paragraph goes through that the person has to be able to live to our uh, and our values uh, while at work, and it lists all the va- all three values right up front in the JD. And uh, in our hiring process, our interview process is more about value alignment. Uh, we've already tested, you know, their their basic uh, cognitive ability and and their behavior set as far as uh, you know. Uh, you know, your disk profile or your predictive index kind of profile. And so we know we can probably teach them to do the job, but the real question is I'm not going to change their core behavior, who they are and how they see the world. That's, you know, I, you know, they can modify that for a while, but it's going to be hard uh, for them if, if it's just not the right fit. And so it's too often that, you, you know, uh, so we spend most of our time talking about values and talking about what it does look like and what it doesn't do look like an organization, but also doing behavioral event interviewing around uh, the kind of values we're looking for uh, from our employees. And then, you know, you have to have the courage when you miss it, you know, when you think that you hired that person and then they end up to be your stellar salesperson or they end up being, you know, bringing, uh, I don't know, hitting all the numbers and taking the revenue to a certain place, but don't have this to say, it's not worth it to me that there's this other downstream cost and it's not worth it to me. And that's sometimes, I think that's where the disconnect is. We are so willing, well, not we, not you and me, but senior management is so willing oftentimes to turn their heads towards someone that's the rainmaker, towards somebody that's, you know, provided something within your organization um, and not having the courage to say, yeah, you're all this, but you're not, you know, but you your turnover is 60% last year. There's a cost to that yeah. too, right? Right. Right. And your, I beha- that- your behavior isn't getting us what we need long-term out of the investment we're making in you. Exactly. And I think yeah. that's where the disconnect happens. And it's all good when things are good, but like I think COVID showed us or the whole pandemic is that it's going to amplify any any kind of vulnerability you have in your organization, whether it's financial, HR, whatever, it, it, I think it, it amplified things and you became aware of what's going on. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. For more information about our commitment to quality and excellent customer service, 
visit us at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com slash credit. Select episode two, How the Pandemic Exposed Bad Managers with Terry Swain, and then enter the code word Terry. That code word is Terry, T-E-R-R-I. And now back to the conversation with Terry Swain. So in in your experiences over the past year, when you've gone to senior management and said, hey, we've completed our investigation and here's what we've found. And you know, the, the issue is this manager's or this individual's uh, lack of, of uh, success as a manager of people, as a motivator and engager of employees. Uh, what's that response been from senior management as you've talked to them? Okay, so it's so interesting because in my work, I usually am the messenger and I sit on a lot of calls, but what they do with it is up to usually arguing between the attorney, the HR person, and the operations. So a lot of times I don't even know what happens. I can only tell you from being on those phone calls that there's a lot of resistance. And, and a lot of the resistance comes from the things that we measure. So we look at that person and their last performance review was a exceeds expectation. And their last bonus was $50,000 and their last raise was 10%. So on paper, they look like a superstar. So if we, if we let, let's say we terminate them or we demote them, do we have the backup on there, like there, right there. So those are all the conversations that take place. That's why I say like, sometimes it takes courage to say, we weren't doing this right. And we weren't measuring this right. And this is what we're going to do. But honestly, I don't know what those people do. You know, when I see the complaints stop coming and stop coming to me, I'm thinking something got fixed, right? (laughs) But I think about one either, company. Either something got fixed or they or they got tired of getting paid to be diagnosed and, and not being willing to. It's like paying for that exactly. gym membership you never use. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. Because, you know, consulting is a great thing. You know, when you're in an organization, it really bothers you when your people don't listen to you. But in consulting, they pay you the same whether they take your advice or not. I always say, my dad had a great saying, if you don't take my good advice, you'll never take my great advice. You're never going to get my great advice. It's kind of that same thing. Like, take my good advice here, but if you don't take it, you're never going to get this great thing. But um, a lot of times, too, in my reports, I don't give, I don't give recommendations because if they don't do them, then that's really bad in litigation. And And it's too bad that... Those are the things that we're weighing sometimes. Like, is this person going to sue us versus doing the right thing, right? So um, usually those talks are verbal and I I say what I think they should do and then whether they do them or not remains to be seen. What kind of uh, interventions do you think would be, you know, tend to be successful? Well, let's say if a manager is just a bad manager and he's already maybe burned some bridges with employees and... People just, you know, he's causing people just to wake up in the morning and, and think, ah, oh, damn, I don't want to go to work today. Um, are there, inter- do you think it's a possible to rehabilitate a manager like that? 
Or do you think that some people just don't belong in management and that we ought to just let them be the stellar salesperson or the, the great executor uh, and keep them away from uh, roles where they're, they're responsible for other people? You know, that's a great question. And I do believe that I do believe people can change. And I do believe that when a manager has been allowed to behave that way, that there's some responsibility on the organization's part because they didn't do values-driven interviewing or have those conversations. And I do believe in trying. Like, I think that if it's your first complaint and you're a new manager, I think that the organization does, should intervene and try and get you some, you know, get you some training. If you've been in that job for 30 years and, you know, everybody knows that's where you are. And and sometimes you even hear that when you're investigating, like, oh, Joe, oh God, everybody knows, or, you know, Sue, everybody knows that's the way she is. Like she's curmudgeon she's been that way forever. That's kind of a different story to me. I think that person probably isn't and won't change and the organization's enabled it. And I think though, if you catch somebody early in their career, um, I think all of us as we're becoming managers or supervisors kind of going up the chain, we don't know how to behave. We don't know that we can be ourselves. We look to other people. We model behavior we see in the organization. So you have to wonder, you know, is that modeled behavior? Is that your own behavior? Can this person, can this employee be saved or not? You know, and so I think that's kind of case by case basis. You've got to look at that. In my first HR role in my early 20s, um, I uh, I was in a, an HR office uh, with that was full of young people uh, and uh, young professionals and not so professionals. And there was a lot of, uh, for lack of a better, you know, just shenanigans going on. Uh, uh, things that today we had never, and this is 30 years ago, but things that we'd never put up with um, in 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 the, in the workplace today, um, it'd be called sexual harassment uh, or something like that. But it, uh, and you know, in in this particular case, the whole office environment was like that. Uh, it was it was more like a fraternity sorority house than it was an, an HR office. And um, I, uh, but then, and it was all cool until it wasn't. And uh, I got called out uh, and ended up meeting with the brand new. Uh, VP of HR about a sexual harassment complaint. And my eyes were this big. I couldn't believe it because uh, that was just the culture. And and I mean, Terry, you've known me for over 20 years. And anybody who's ever seen me speak at an HR conference knows that that borderline between appropriate and inappropriate is very blurred and gray with me sometimes. And so, uh, <laughs> it, 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 you know, I'll just, you know, it's no shock. Uh, so, but, you know, I went too far. And I learned, and to my, to, to her credit, my VP of HR, who uh, was, who really became my mentor uh, throughout my HR career, uh, saw that I was a young knucklehead uh, with uh, a modicum of uh, potential and, uh, and just, you know, made it real frank, you know, it was real frank with me that this isn't going to happen here. And this is, you know, um, you're responsible for your behavior. And so just because you say the environment is like that, it may well be, and we're going to change that too, but you're responsible for how you behave. And and that really stuck with me uh, over all my years in, in, in trying to uh, help 
my own employees uh, and other and, and folks who I've coached or uh, worked with as, as clients, help them be successful, uh, realizing that, you know, sometimes it's just not knowing and not realizing the impact you're having with, with certain behaviors. And, and, you know, I think if, if we're really lucky, we're able to modify that. And then, then I certainly worked with plenty of managers who were both young and old and were so committed to being who they were, the way they are, that there was no rehabbing them. And the best thing you could do is move them out of the organization and help them go be toxic someplace else, preferably at a competitor. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Well, any, any last thoughts, Terry, around, uh, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, just ask you, what do you think the, the you know, with now that everybody's coming back to work and the Delta variants out there and people are getting nervous about, uh, I shouldn't say coming back to work. We were all working all along, uh, coming back to the physical offices. Uh, what do you think the, the, the workplace is going to look like in the next six months? Well, I think most from talking to my clients, I think everybody, most everyone's going to adopt a hybrid kind of model where they're working from home. It's some working from home, some in the office, some, some people will probably always stay um, at home. Some people will probably always stay in the office. Um, I think that everybody's kind of putting together protocols for, Hey, if the cases get this way, this is, here's DEFCON 2, we're going to go to everybody at home or, you know, whatever the case may be. So I think that it's a you know we've had time to think about it so i think the best organizations have thoughtful approaches i see us having a lot of um uh disabilities ada claims americans with disabilities act claims um because i think we're going to get into this whole you know should i be vaccinated should i not be vaccinated what is my condition um i can't be around people and i, I think we're going to see a lot of those kinds of things and i think I think good organizations are going to think about, you know, is this a person? Because that's the first thing people say, oh, this person's playing the system. They just want to be at home so they can play with their kids and dogs or whatever the case may be. Or are we going to take a thoughtful approach to really looking at it and seeing what is best for our business and our employees and what's going to help us grow and, and go and go forward? How about you? What do you see happening? Well, and that is, oh, I, I think, uh, I think you're right. I, um, I think there's going to be certain kinds of industries where people can work remote and it, you know, um, I'm a, you know, my analyst to do background checks all day, or, you know, the, the behavior style that I look for is basically pretty introvert, introverted, very low sociability, uh, low dominance. I'm looking for, you know, people that work at a really steady pace and are really driven to complete the work every day. Uh, and, uh, those folks and, and my experience over the last, year and a half, those folks love working remote. I mean, you know, in our office, we have big open, uh, open office area. And uh, even when we were all in the office together, they were Skyping with each other back and forth rather than asking questions verbally, picking up the phone or even walking over to other people's desks. They were just, they, they would Skype all day. So we were three weeks into the pandemic and I was really concerned and checking on in on everybody. And they're all like, Oh no, this is great. This is just like being at the office, except I don't have to put on shoes and I don't have to, you know, drive to the office every day. And we're staying remote. Our productivity by all of our measures is higher than it was uh, pre pandemic. I mean, 
a lot of my employees have an hour, hour and a half of their day back just from avoiding a commute. So um, I think you're going to see that. But I do think there are certain certain environments where high sociability is a, is rewarded and and is a benefit. And I think you're going to see those folks um, either have a hybrid model or be back full time. But you know. In looking at what we've seen with the Delta variant so far, and the CDC came out with some new suggestions yesterday, I think, um, you know, I think there may be a little yo-yo back and forth to figure out how, how you know, how different employers are going to, uh, 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 you know, respond to it. We had a, our first, one of our hires that we've made, you know, since going remote, uh, he washed out after about three weeks. And he just said, I've never worked remote before. And the isolation is much more than I expected, and I need to be in an office with other people. And and uh, and you know, I, I said, God bless you, man. You know, I I, I get it, and I'm the same way. <laughs> if uh, if they closed every restaurant in Fort Worth and I couldn't go have coffee or do something every day during the pandemic, I would have been climbing the walls. When all the coffee shops were were, were closed, the Starbucks at Kroger was still open, so I would go get a Starbucks at Kroger and walk the aisles. Uh, I need people, so I understood what. Yeah. Uh, and so I, uh, you know, so I got it. But so I think there are going to be people who just can't do the remote thing. And and I think employers are going to have to start really customizing their brand as to how they recruit employees around those kind of issues, because some are going to demand it. Some are going to want the flexibility of hybrid and some are just going to want to be around people. All day. So I think I think we're going to have to figure that out. But that is all the time we have for this morning. Thanks for joining us, Terry. I really appreciate you. Anytime, Mike. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on our Facebook or Instagram feeds. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer and imperatives marketing coordinator. Katie Bautista keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, please don't hesitate to reach out to me if I can be of service to you professionally or personally. I'll see you next week. And until then, keep your chin up and think big thoughts.